Welcome to number four of the series of tapes, What We Catholics Believe. This one is describing what we Catholics believe about the Blessed Trinity. Now, obviously this is a great mystery, the central mystery of our faith. And I'm only going to be able to tell you a very little about what I know about it. But perhaps you'll be able to find other books, I shall suggest one or two, which can give you a deeper and more profound knowledge, because there's no doubt it's a very important doctrine, one we should not ignore just because it's a little bit difficult. I always feel very sorry on Trinity Sunday if the priest comes into the pulpit to give a sermon and repeats the story which we all know of the dream that St. Augustine had, that he was walking along a sandy beach one day, meditating about the mystery of the Trinity, puzzling about it in his mind. And he saw a little boy digging a hole. So he stopped to speak to him. And he said, what are you doing? I'm digging this hole, said the boy, and then I'm going to put the ocean into the hole. So he said to him, oh no, you can't do that. You're quite right, said the boy, I can't do it. And you cannot understand the Blessed Trinity with your finite mind. And the boy vanished, and St. Augustine realised he'd been speaking to an angel who was giving him a little bit of wise advice. Now that means we shouldn't puzzle over the Trinity, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it or find out what we can learn about it. It is a mystery, yes, but one very well worth exploring. As Dr. Frank Sheed used to say, and I'm very indebted to him for my small uh, grasp of what some of the points on the Trinity are, because he was brilliant at speaking about it. And if you want to learn more, one of the books that you could study would be Theology and Sanity, his book about religion, which devotes four chapters to the Blessed Trinity. But he said that the fact that Jesus has revealed the Trinity to us, when it wasn't necessary for our salvation, and the only reason he could have told us was because he wants us to know this piece of information about the inner life of God. And he compared it with the way we tell our friends secrets about ourselves, about what we think and feel. We don't expect them to snub us and walk away and take no interest. So when Jesus reveals something of the innermost life of God to us, it's rather insensitive to ignore it. We should certainly take it on board and see what we can do with it. After all, we are hoping, trusting, that we will be spending eternity with the Blessed Trinity in heaven. And even now, if we are baptised, if we are in a state of grace, serving God, keeping his word, then the three blessed persons in the Trinity are dwelling in our souls. Jesus told us that at the Last Supper. We can read it in St. John's Gospel, chapter 14. 
and Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, a French nun who lived at the beginning of the 20th century, has written some beautiful poems exploring just that doctrine, that we are all indwelt with the three divine persons of the Blessed Trinity. The poems have been translated by Alan Bancroft in a book called Barb of Fire, which is published by Gracewing. And that gives you the devotional side of this mystery, as Frank Sheed gives you the doctrinal side. So let's examine what Jesus did actually reveal, what the church now teaches us with his voice. There are three main facts for us to hold on to, it seems to me. The first is that there is only one God, only one divine nature. There has to be, as we saw earlier on in tape number one. You can only have one supreme spirit, infinite in all his perfections. If you have two or three or more than that, then they overlap and they're not supreme, they're not infinite. So there is only one God. The second fact is that that divine nature is possessed by three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And then the third one, that these three persons are distinct and equal, but they are not three gods. Now those are the three facts we have to keep together in our mind. And they are not as contradictory as they may sound at first. Because the church is not saying that there are three gods in one God or three persons in one person. Now that would be contradictory, that would be nonsense. No, what the church is saying is there are three persons in one divine nature. And once we grasp the difference between nature and person, then we can see that this is not against reason. It might be above reason, but it's not against it. Because nature and person are separate. Your nature determines what you can do, your sphere of activity. It's the nature of a fish to live in water. He can breathe in water. Nature of a bird to fly. Nature of human beings to know and to love. But person defines who you are, not what you are, but who you are. The person says, this is John Smith, or this is Mary Jones. Now that means they're two slightly different entities, nature and person. It might help, perhaps, if we were to imagine that we, you and I, <coughs> are sitting in the same room and talking. But you're sitting with your back to the door, and I can see the door. Now you hear the door open and shut. So without looking round, you ask me about that who came in, what came in. Now there are two questions you can ask. You can say to me, what was that? I might say, that was the wind. 
Oh, that was a dog. The dog came in. Or I might say that was a man that's come in. I'm telling you what it is. I'm telling you the nature of the intrusion. Or you might ask a different question. You might say to me, who was that? Then I would answer, it wasn't anyone, it was just the wind. Or it was John Smith came in. I tell you the name of the person if you say who. Because you've asked about a different thing. Nature and person are not identical. And once we understand that, then we know we're not contradicting ourselves. Now, the mystery is that, of course, we are used to one human nature being possessed by one human person. That's all we ever see, all over the world, multiplied again and again. One person to one nature. So we think, well, that's the only way it can be. Well, that's the only way it can be with us finite human beings. But that doesn't mean it's the only way it can be with Almighty God, who is infinite and so much greater than us. As you will remember, he is different from us in very many ways. He's eternal. He's almighty. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. And he is three persons in one nature. And that's where the mystery lies. But I think if we remember those two points, that we are talking about nature and person, and not a contradiction, then we can explain to anyone we're teaching that it's not against reason, it's not unreasonable, because they might be challenged on it. But it's just a mystery, impossible for us to completely understand. But then we expect anything about God to be a mystery. We're back with St. Augustine. Our finite minds cannot contain the infinite God. So we expect to come up against mysteries. We just accept that, but we know what we learn what we can about them. Now this mystery we would not have worked out for ourselves if it hadn't been revealed to us. That's why we know about it, and that's why we treasure it. God has told us about it. And he told us, Jesus told us when he came on earth. And you'll start finding references to it in the New Testament. Although, it's interesting, with hindsight, now that we know about the Blessed Trinity, we can see hints of it in the Old Testament. For instance, in Genesis 1, and we talked about this about the creation, you find God saying, in one verse, Let us make man to our image and likeness. That's plural. But in the very next verse, it says, God made man to his image and likeness. Went back to the singular. Now, I don't think the Jews, I'm sure the Jews didn't know about the Trinity. They knew very well there was just one God. That was very important to keep straight because so many people surrounding them (coughs) had lots of gods. But they still kept that verse in. When it was an oral tradition, they still repeated it. And when it was written down, that's how it was written. Let us make man 
to our image and likeness. Also, one of the words they used for God, Elohim, is a plural word. But it always takes, apparently, a singular verb and a singular adjective. And what I think is one of the most striking instances of the Trinity in the Old Testament comes in Genesis 18. And it's the story of a very important day in the history of the world. Abraham was sitting at the door of his tent. It's a very hot day. He and Sarah had no children, but he was faithful to God. And he'd come out to the land that God had asked him to come to. While he was sitting there, he saw away in the distance three figures walking towards him. Now in the desert, people were very rare. He hurried out straight away to greet them and to welcome them and to ask them to stay at his tent and promise to provide a meal. He asked his wife Sarah to prepare a meal. He washed his visitors' feet. He made them as welcome as he could. And the three of them sat down with Abraham to enjoy the meal. And while they ate, one of the three strangers said to Abraham, When we come back this way, in a year's time, you will have a baby boy. Now, that was something very surprising because Abraham was then in his 90s and Sarah was equally old. In fact, Sarah who wasn't joining them at the meal. Women didn't join the men at the meals in that culture. Was hiding behind the curtain listening to hear the conversation. And she couldn't refrain from laughing. That struck her as impossible. But of course, with God, nothing is impossible. But that was the promise of our redemption. The son they were foretelling was Isaac. The whole Jewish race was going to come from Isaac, the chosen people. And the Messiah would be born from Isaac. And of course it all came to pass as they said. But knowing about the Trinity now, and because it was such an important, momentous occasion, you can't help wondering if that was the three persons of the Blessed Trinity who'd visited Abraham. But of course once we get to the New Testament, then the teaching about the Trinity is far more explicit. Right at the beginning, in the first chapter of St. Luke, at the Annunciation, we have the angel telling Our Lady, The Holy Spirit will come upon thee. The Most High will overshadow you, and the Holy Born of you will be the Son of God. There you are, three persons. Again, at Jesus' baptism, described in the third chapter of St. Matthew, a dove appears over his head. A voice of God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. We have the three members of the Trinity together. The baptism was the beginning of his public life. It was an important occasion. Another one that springs to mind was Easter Sunday. When Jesus appeared to the apostles in the upper room in the evening. And after he'd eaten with them. He stood up and he said, As the Father has sent me, so do I send you. Then he breathed on them 
and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gave them the power to forgive sins. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And again, there were all three members of the, Holy, of the Blessed Trinity brought into that tremendous occasion. And perhaps another very significant one are Jesus' last words before his ascension into heaven, described in Matthew chapter 28. He said to the apostles, All authority is given me in heaven and on earth. Going therefore, teach all nations everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and he ascended into heaven now he put the Father they all knew God the Father the Son himself and the Holy Spirit all together all equal and he said in the name not names in the name singular of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit that, in a way, is the teaching on the Trinity in a nutshell. If you think for a minute, supposing he put somebody else there instead of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Archangel Gabriel, it would jar instantly. You'd think, oh, he doesn't belong there. No, but the Holy Spirit does, because he is God just as much as God the Father is, or God the Son. But I suppose the most exhaustive and careful teaching on the Trinity that you find in the New Testament is Jesus' discourse at the Last Supper. It's in St. John's Gospel and he devotes three whole chapters to it. Though he has a short Gospel, only 21 chapters, three of them are given up to this discourse because it is so important. Chapter 14, 15 and 16 are full of teaching on the Trinity, on other things as well, but very much on the Trinity. He tells the apostles that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then he says later on, and the Father will send, I will ask the Father, and he will send another paraclete. Another paraclete. That's someone equal to me. And then he says, and this is the promise I quoted at the beginning, anyone who loves me and keeps my word, the Father will love him, and he and I will come and take up our abode with him. The Trinity will come, the, people, the divine persons in the Trinity will come, take up their abode in our souls. If we love God, we keep his word. That's an amazing promise. That is something we should keep in mind if we can all the time. Now obviously this teaching on the Trinity went home. The apostles preached it, remembered it, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in the Acts of the Apostles, in the Epistles and in the Acts, we find it coming to the fore. I'll just give you three quotations from 
three of the epistles. St. Peter begins his first epistle with a blessing invoking each divine person in the Trinity. St. Paul ends his second epistle to the Corinthians by saying, The grace of Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the communication of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here's the Trinity. And in St. John's first epistle, in chapter 5, and this is a very clear exposition, he says, There are three who give testimony in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now all this teaching from our Lord's own lips, from his apostles, gives us, as it were, the strong truths about the Trinity. The bare bones, in a way, And since that time, in the centuries that have gone between then and now, it has been worked on and examined by theologians. Sometimes with just a deeper interest to find out more about it, sometimes to correct mistakes and errors, and debated at some of the early councils. There's masses of material on it. Obviously, I'm I'm only going to scratch the surface in this talk. But I will give you a little of what some of them have said. For instance, one thing that interests people, and I've been asked about this, is why are there three persons? I can remember there was a silly limerick when I was young about someone who was boasting about his heroic faith. And he said he wished there were four of them so he could believe more of them. Well, no, he's not using his mind because there can't possibly be four. There have to be three. And that's because God is a spirit and there are two functions of spirit. The two functions are to know, using your intellect, and to love, using your will. Now the supreme spirit, who is infinite in his perfections, his knowledge is perfect. And that's his knowledge of everything, including his knowledge of himself. And it's direct as well as perfect. It's not an idea of himself. It's complete and direct. I mean, it's not like the knowledge we have of ourselves. We know ourselves, or we think we do. But we only have an idea of ourselves. And we can be wrong. And we can change that idea sometimes when we find we're wrong. God doesn't know through ideas. He knows directly. His knowledge of himself is perfect. And it's so complete and absolute that it is another person. And that makes the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And that's why the second person of the Blessed Trinity is described as the Word. Logos, not the word verbum, the kind of words I'm using, but the word meaning the idea, the knowledge of God. And St. John, the Apostle, when he starts his Gospel, makes this very clear. You'll remember he says, 
In the beginning was the Word. Capital W. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then a few verses further on. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory, the glory as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the second person of the Blessed Trinity is the Word, the knowledge of God. The idea. And of course also described as the Son, generated by the Father. Now, human sons are always younger than their human fathers. But, of course, with God, this is not so. God the Son has existed from all eternity. He can't have come later than God the Father because God doesn't change. He's always been three persons from the very beginning. So God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity, has existed from all eternity. Now, the other function of spirit is to love. And the two persons, God the Father, God the Son, both of them perfectly good, perfectly lovable, have a great love for each other. And this love, again, is so complete, so perfect, that it is a third person. God the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, and the Son, again, from all eternity. Now this, obviously, took quite a little bit of working out. But the Trinity was one of the first doctrines that the Church took time to think about. And by the year 381, after the Second Council of Constantinople, we have the Nicene Creed written. This is the creed we say at Mass every Sunday. And it talks about, when it begins, I believe in one God, the Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth. Then later on it talks about Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son of the Father, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. And that's what the Church has actually defined and put down in writing since 381. Later on, after speaking about our Lord's life and death, we come to, I believe too in the Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. And that's our belief on the Trinity. Now, as I say, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but I'm not going to explain it. It is a mystery. And one definition of a mystery is an area of fact about which we know something with certainty. And what I've been saying we know with certainty because the Church has defined it but about which we do not know everything. And it doesn't matter. We don't expect to know everything. We'd be disappointed if we did. 
we'd be containing the great God in our little minds and he wouldn't be so great. So that's no problem. But it's nice to know something. And Jesus wants us to know something or he wouldn't have revealed it. And I think he wants us to know something about the Trinity so that we will pray with the Trinity in mind. We do say prayers to the Trinity all the time. The sign of the cross is a prayer to the Blessed Trinity. And of course the glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer and a very ancient one in praise of the Blessed Trinity which we can't say too often. We should pray to the Trinity in that way. We should also pray to each person of the Trinity separately. And we should try to remember that the three divine persons are dwelling in our souls, closer to us even than we are to ourselves. Now I'd like to stop now speaking about the Trinity I'm hoping that you will go on reading and learning and thinking about it more yourself. But I'd like to stop now to say the mystery of the rosary that we finish our tapes with. And we've got now to the third joyful mystery of the rosary. And this is when we think about the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You remember that Mary and Joseph would have been living in Nazareth. Mary had come back from her cousin Elizabeth's house and they'd settled in Nazareth and she'd have been preparing the clothes for the baby, the swaddling clothes and the other clothes. And St. Joseph and she decided that this would be a good time for them to go to Bethlehem. They had to write their names in the register for the census the emperor was calling, the first worldwide census as he thought it was. And Bethlehem was the town <coughs> that their family came from. So they made their way to Bethlehem, which is about 70 miles from Nazareth. So that journey would have taken several days, sleeping on the way. But eventually they arrived in Bethlehem, and because the baby's arrival was very imminent, they tried to find room at an inn to stay. And you'd remember that there was no room for them. They were turned away. Till eventually one innkeeper took pity on them and allowed them to use his stable, a cave, really, in which he kept his ox. Now, it couldn't have been very easy, but I'm sure our Blessed Lady's serenity never deserted her. She knew that if this is what was happening, this is what Jesus wanted. And they made the stable as comfortable as they could. And that was where Jesus was born. And then because there was no cradle, laid in the manger on the cloth that she had bought. And she and St. Joseph would have been kneeling in prayer, because they know that although he looks like a tiny, helpless, newborn baby, this is God, second person of the Blessed Trinity, made flesh, living on earth. And while they were kneeling in prayer, they were visited by some shepherds who came in and knelt as well. And when St. Joseph asked them how they knew about the baby's arrival, 
The shepherds told them a wonderful story. How while they were minding their sheep on the hillside, a host of angels appeared, singing glory be to God on high and peace on earth to men of good will. And now one of the angels told them the baby king had been born in Bethlehem and they could go and see him. And they made their way. And after they departed, Our Lady and St. Joseph pondered on these words, meditated on them, and kept them in their hearts. So that years later, Mary was able to tell St. Luke and St. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, about the happenings of that night and about the angel's appearance. So that's the story we think about while we say the Our Father, Glory Be, and Ten Hail Marys. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, 
and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Thank you very much for listening to this tape. The next one is going to be about the Incarnation, about how God the Son became man. God bless you all.